if, if you could please turn your attention to Mark chapter 12. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. Hey, really good news. I thought about this. So last year we started our, our study through the Gospel of Mark. By the end of June, we are going to be able to say we've gone through the entire Gospel of Mark together. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, yeah, like nobody cheer. It's okay. <laughs> but we've just completed another book of the Bible. Just to kind of give you a picture of where we're going to be heading uh, in our preaching this year, there's going to be a few different books that we're going to be uh, diving into. Uh, I'm hoping to, to do a series on the church through the book of 1 Timothy. So that's going to be coming up uh, towards the fall. We're also going to do a series on creation through Genesis 1 through 11. So uh, if those are things that have kind of grabbed your interest before or piqued your interest, uh, keep an eye out for that. If you want to start preparing your hearts by studying through those books and reading those books uh, in your devotional time. We want to encourage you to do that. But uh, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark this morning, uh, we have a a great opportunity to see the person of Jesus through the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but I think uh, everybody can say that they've been in some sort of conflict before. Have you ever been in a conflict? Yeah? Uh, Okay. How many of you know the typical middle school story of conflict, right? You've got a friend group, and all these friends are really close. They've known each other their whole lives, right? They, they've spent time together. They love each other. They go on the bus together. They spend afternoons at each other's houses. And then what happens in the friend group is they grow up as they get a little bit older. There's one friend that kind of takes a step out, right? And they go into this new group, maybe uh, what we would call the enemy group, right? The dark and twisty. We've seen this in every movie. Mean Girls comes to the top of my head. If you haven't seen Mean Girls, do yourself a favor. Watch it this week. It's a really interesting (laughs) movie, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, maybe you don't want to watch it. Uh, I I haven't really been on a good show kick lately. Last week I talked about suits. Let's let's not go down that avenue, right? (laughs) But uh, as as you think through just kind of different conflicts that, that we face, every Hallmark movie, every show, every movie that we have seen has some sort of conflict that it builds up to. One conflict that exists here in our church is between two very good sports teams, the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? We have Yankee fans in the church. Hey, praise the Lord, 27 championships. It's all good. David, what's up? What's up, man? (laughs) He's like, I don't know if I want to be with you right now, (laughs) right? And then we have our Red Sox fans. They're always loud. They're always loud, right? That's one of my, my one thing. You know, New Yorkers are supposed to be loud. This week I got to experience uh, some, a fir- my first taste ever of Sally's Pizza in New Haven. So if you haven't been down to New Haven, uh, yeah, I had, I had four different pizzas. And Rachel had to almost like pull me off the ground the other day because I was so stuffed with pizza. Uh, you know it's good pizza when you can send an Irish boy into, into an Italian pizza restaurant and he gets a white potato pizza and loves it. So, uh, yeah. All my Irish friends are, are celebrating. But yeah, we have a conflict between the Yankees and the Red Sox. There's Yankee fans, there's Red Sox fans, and we come to church together every week, and we kind of live in this tension, right? Like, David and I are the only Yankee fans in the room right now. Guys, you've got to speak up for me here, right? Yeah. My own family is leaving me high and dry here. Uh, and we got our Red Sox fans in the room. And, and there's this, this tension that exists within us because we love our teams, but we love each other, Right? And what happens is we kind of get to this point in the season, it's really early on right now, uh, we, we can't have too many bragging rights about who's the best team in baseball. Last year, we had incredible seasons, two teams with 100 wins apiece, right? 
That's almost uh, unheard of in the same division. It was one of the most historic seasons of baseball that we have ever seen uh, in the history of the MLB. And, and we can celebrate that, but as soon as the postseason came, it was uh, the battle between the Yankees and the Red Sox, the first round. And it broke my heart because you have two amazing teams. And if they were given the chance to go a little bit further and they weren't on the same uh, division, they weren't on the same side, it would have made for a really interesting World Series. But nonetheless, they don't pay me to uh, come up with the structures and divisions in the MLB. Uh, I have some ideas. Uh, if you know if Adam Silver, or not Adam Silver, I don't even know what his name is now. But if he wants to call me up, uh, you can give him my number. Uh, I'll share my thoughts with him. But nonetheless, there's a conflict that exists right there. The tension is real. And as we come to Mark 12 this morning, we're going to see Jesus in the middle of a conflict with the Pharisees. Last week, we introduced the parable of the tenants, and as we have been working through Mark 11 and 12, we started to see as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem that he started this conflict, that there was a conflict that kind of came to its height between him and the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders in Mark have seen Jesus as a threat from the very beginning of this gospel. And the one thing that Jesus continues to poke these leaders with is their desire for authority. They thought of themselves with the ultimate power and influence amongst the people and the religion of their day. But Jesus proclaims time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark that he has an authority that supersedes theirs and comes from God himself. This is one of the main pieces at the heart of their conflict. By no means am I going to try to relate Jesus and these leaders to the typical story of middle school girls or mean girls, but I'm going to point us to the reality of a conflict. It's not fair to Jesus to say that this conflict is like that of middle school girls, but it it may be a good description for the religious leaders of the day. Mark 11 starts his journey where Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's heading towards the cross, and he makes his way into the temple, and he establishes God's authority in the temple by declaring it to be a place of worship and not a den of robbers. And in Mark 11, verses 27 to 33, the Pharisees are enraged by Jesus' authority, and they press him. He tells them that his authority is from God alone. And then last week, as we went through the parable of the tenants, we saw a man who bought a field, who planted a vineyard, who built a wine press and a tower and leased the farm to other tenants. And these other tenants think that they have right and ownership over what is not theirs. And they beat and kill and destroy the servants. And ultimately, the son of the owner of this vineyard. And this is a picture of Jesus who will be beaten and killed by the leaders of Judaism. Our text for this morning is Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, and the title of this message is Allegiance. This text will expose us to the depths of the leader's sinfulness. Their pride and insecurity led them to doing something that was evil. The passage will show us the absolute authority of Jesus that supersedes the authority of man. And it will confront us with the truth that our allegiance belongs to God and not to man. So as we go to the word this morning, join me in a quick moment of prayer. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would open the eyes of 
our hearts and that we would see Christ this morning and we would exalt him and proclaim his goodness. We submit to you now and pray that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Follow along as I read the passage for us this morning. You will read silently in your own head and heart. Mark 12, verse 13 reads like this. They sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus responded, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As we come to the text this morning, the first thing that we need to see on display is that problem of humanity. The insecurity and pride of these religious leaders led them to pursue evil. And the first thing to note in this passage is the relationship between the Pharisees and the Herodians. In verse 13, it points us to this, and it says, they sent, him, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians with the goal of trapping him in his talk. The Pharisees represent the religious leaders of the people of Israel, and the Herodians are the representatives of the political power in Jerusalem. And this connection may come as surprising, but this has been in development from the early phases of Mark. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus claimed his authority over the Sabbath, and he began to proclaim his ministry where he would show himself to be in power as the Son of God. And the Pharisees responded with angst and anger towards him. And in Mark 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. See, their partnership from the early stages of Mark and now here in Mark 12 has been based around the goal of destroying Jesus. This is rooted in an evil and the initial conversation, it begins in verse 14. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They remind Jesus that he's a man of integrity who paid no attention to the opinions of men. That Jesus was a man who taught commitment to the way of life that is commanded by God. But in their relationship, we need to see the trauma that exists in the depths of their depravity and evil that caused them to build this partnership together. See, beyond what we see here in the Gospel of Mark, beyond Jesus' life and ministry, the, the conflict that existed between the Pharisees and the Herodians began actually in 6 A.D., And it all began around the evil of money. 
In 6 AD, there was a man who came and set power of a case of tribute for money over, <laughs> over the, uh, the, the Jewish people. And what they wanted to see happen was that the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, needed to pay taxes to the Roman Empire to show their allegiance and their trust that as they were submitting to the Romans, that they were now under their foot. And the zealots, the the people of the religious leaders, refused to pay this tax because it acknowledged that their dominion was not from God, but that they were dominated by the Romans. The Pharisees resented this tax. They were humiliated by this tax. But ultimately, they justified its payment because they didn't want to stir the pot. They wanted to stay in their position of power. And then the Herodians, who enjoyed all of the pleasures of leadership and power and the political setup, they supported it on its principle because it fed their desire to gain and have success. In asking this question, the Pharisees' concern about the tribute money that's brought up here that goes to Caesar isn't about anything more than moral and religious implication. And the Herodians, they were concerned with nationalistic and political measures. So as they pose this question, they say to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're asking a question that is double-handed. One, should we put our allegiance into Caesar or should we put our allegiance into God? They're trying to throw Jesus in between a rock and a hard place. Jesus, you have to pick your theology or your politics. And they know that if he responds one way or the other, that Jesus is set up to be crucified, that he's going to be sent out, and that he could be killed, and he could ultimately be destroyed, the fulfillment of their desire. If he goes towards theology, if he goes towards honoring God, then he dishonors man, and if he dishonors the Roman Empire, that only ends in one way, destruction. But if he dishonors God at the expense of man, the cost would be eternal condemnation. See, the goal of this question was to destroy Jesus and to discredit him in front of all of the people. And see, we might not be forced with this question that Jesus faced, but we are faced with the reality of the temptation that we can be led by the fear of man. In each one of us, there's a desire to be liked. In each one of us, there's a desire to be appreciated. In each one of us, there's a desire to be wanted and known and admired. We love it when other people love us. That's why... It's hard for us to raise our hand in church and say if we're Yankee fans or Red Sox fans. It's why it's hard for us as we think through conflicts to address people that we love with different opinions. We would rather hide from the idea of conflict than face it because we are fearful of men. I remember as a young 
pastor coming into the ministry as I was going through my ordination council, being grilled by six other pastors from all sorts of different denominational backgrounds. As they were asking me theology after theology after theology, they started to come to the practical questions. And they'd lay out things like, what would you do in this case? What would you do if you had someone who was in a position of leadership and someone who had been a trusted member of the church for some time but had committed a moral wrong? And then they wanted you to go about a different decision based on their influence and their power. How would you respond? And it was clear as day to me, I would not be broken by man. I would not go that way. They can tell me whatever they want to tell me. They can try to convince me that they have all the power and might, but I am going to stick to God. It was my conviction. It is still my conviction today, but I will not lie to you. The temptation exists. It's hard to say to people who have been established in a church for some time, hey, this is the direction we need to go. It's hard to say to people who are older than you, God is calling us to this, even if they disagree with you. It's hard to confront realities when we are in broken relationships and we've wronged one another or you've been wronged and have to bring these things to the surface and say the biblical thing is to pursue reconciliation. It's hard to admit when you're wrong. And it's hard when in our hearts we're still motivated by sinful desires. I've admitted publicly a few times from this pulpit that the fear of man is a real thing. It's a temptation that we face. But if we give in to the fear of man, we will not honor God. We will be running from him. Friends, I don't know if you have the temptation to be liked at work or liked in your family, or liked in your friend group. But hear me when I say this. If you run to being liked by men more than you love the Lord your God, it will end in failure. It will end in failure. Sometimes we do whatever it takes to be admired. Fix the broken relationship. Say we're not Yankee fans when we're Yankee fans. To do the thing that keeps us quiet so that we don't have to face the confrontation or the conflict. But sweeping things under the rug and thinking that they don't actually exist doesn't actually do anything other than build a pile of dirt that's underneath the carpet. And then you trip. And it causes you pain. The problem that exists in humanity in humans is the problem of our pride and our insecurity. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. But we have to go after what is right and true and honorable by the Bible, by God himself, not by others. Jesus does something pretty amazing in this passage. As they pose this question to him, this this question is absolutely brilliant from the Pharisees. This is not just some sort of, hey, we're going to 
we're going to throw something real silly out here. They thought long and hard about this question, and it was formulated in a brilliant way. If we pit him this way or that way, he's in trouble. But look at God himself. Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy. In verse 15, he says, Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And there's two things that are happening right here. Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy, and he knows as the sovereign God where this is going to head and how this conversation is going to end. And that at the same time, the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, we've got him. Here we go. This is going to be good. He's starting to answer. He's in trouble. But recognize this. As, as Jesus addresses them, Mark says he knows their hypocrisy, and he asks them this question, why do you test me? It's a call of exasperation. Jesus is fed up with the Pharisees. And he's just like, oh, you again? This conversation? Really? But how he responds is super important because their whole goal is to put him in a bind. So Jesus commands them, go and get a denarius. And bring it to me. And, and this implies the fact that they had no money within them, which is kind of odd because they're in the middle of the temple. They're on the porch as they're getting ready to enter into the temple and, and commune with other people. But as he asks him for this coin, the thing we need to recognize is that this coin was the only payment that was accepted for taxes. It was small and silver, it was worth about what we would see as 18 cents today. And on this coin, the denarius of Tiberius portrayed the emperor as the semi-divine son of the god Augustus and the goddess Livia. And it bore this inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, it said Pontifex Maximus. And both of these inscriptions on this small little coin point to a reality that these people, these Romans, think of themselves as divine, having the status of God. And we should think back on Jesus' anger as he enters the temple, as he attacked the idolatry of these religious leaders who are running towards money, trying to earn their dollar and earn their power and earn their right and fill their pockets. And then we should think about the history of what has happened through the city of Jerusalem in 30 years prior to this actual conversation, 25 years or so prior to this actual conversation, these same religious leaders cried because of the evil that was forced on them to pay tribute to another emperor because of their power. They were angry with the Romans, and now they're turning to the Romans. They turn and run to the very people that their feelings have been hurt by. But there's something that they hate even more than the Romans attacking their money. 
It's when someone tacks their authority. The religious leaders are bent with Jesus, not because he's taking their money away, but because he's defying their authority. Jesus' response draws them in in such a way in which they think, we've got him nailed. But friends, no one, no one pulls one over on the sovereign God of the universe. I don't know if you've ever been this mad before. I know there have been times where my rage has clouded my judgment. Often that comes behind the wheel as I'm on the car and somebody does something stupid. (laughs) Yesterday I almost got hit on Route 84. It was craziness. And I was angry. And there have been times where even though someone may have been trying to do right by me, I saw all of their actions wrong because of my anger. And if I'm honest, there have been moments where I've been hypocritical. Moments where I've said, I can't believe that that person would do such a thing. Moments where I have said, I would never do that. And then it hits me hard. Because the reality is that my sin would lead me to that. I am not exempt. Have you ever had this conversation with yourself too? Where you've said, I can't believe they've done that. I can't believe they've wronged me. I can't believe they're trying to do this. I would never do that. Have you ever had the conversation and thought, what if they're Christians? I can't believe they're being legalistic. I can't believe they're unforgiving. I can't believe that he did that. He's supposed to be a leader. They're supposed to know better. I've never struggled with that. What's wrong with them? Why is it taking them so long to understand this? Sometimes those thoughts are quiet. Sometimes they come out loud, and we actually blurt them out. But hear this note from Charles Spurgeon. This one convicts me time and time again. He says, every Sunday morning, some folks take out their godliness and they touch it up. While they're turning the brush around their best hat, many women, after a fashion, put on the fear of God with their new bonnet. And when Sunday is over and their best things are put away, they've also put away their best thoughts and their best behavior. We must have a seven days religion or else we have none at all. Periodical godliness is perpetual hypocrisy. The reality is is that each one of us is this close to ruining it all. That our sin can blow up our testimony. The reality is is that grace is just as close. But we can't put on the hat, we can't put on the best and walk around periodically and say, hey, I've got my stuff together here, look at me, I'm I'm good, my outward godliness is is shining through, I know what's right, I'm going to do these things. See, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. 
when the people came around, they looked for the accolades, and they said, look at my outward appearance. Look at what's going on. Look at, look at this. I've got this together. And then when the people were gone, they were going into the temple, and they became money exchangers. And I hear those words from Spurgeon again. Periodic godliness is perpetual hypocrisy. You can't just turn the switch on and off. We're all that close. We're just so close. And look at Jesus' response to them. In verse 17, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And Mark ends it with a comment where he says, They marveled at him. These Pharisees think, Aha, we've got him. We've set him up in his words. We've got him in his talk. The very thing they wanted to destroy Jesus over is the very thing that he destroys them with. They try to catch him in his words, and he delivers his words, and as the sovereign God over all things, he puts them in their place. But he teaches us something in this moment. He teaches us about our allegiance. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' reply essentially is saying, be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. In his reply, he admits that the image and inscription on this coin are Caesar's. Caesar made this coin. And he's, he's acknowledging that Caesar, as the ruler of this place, has authority to proclaim taxes over these people. And so he says to them, Fulfill your obligation. And you're probably having a conflict in your own heart and mind right now. What? Hear the words of Paul from Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who will resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. These are some pretty strong words from Paul. Pretty strong words from Jesus here. And in Jesus' response, he is showing himself to be opposed to any belief that 
there's a theocratic state at this moment and an expectation that the consummation, the return of the kingdom is coming at that very moment. But he does something. He distinguishes between Caesar and God. And the thing that he gives to Caesar is not what's on the coin. It's what the coin pays. Jesus is not condoning Caesar's idolatry. He is not condoning this divine activity from the Romans. He's saying the divine honor belongs to God alone. That no one can misplace or displace God in his authority. That nobody pulls one over on God. He says, duty toward God and Caesar, though they're distinct, are not completely separated. But they're united and ruled by the higher principle of accomplishing in all things the will of God. Our desire as Christians... First, the primary desire, the primary motive of our life is to bring glory and honor to God, to accomplish His will, to do His work. That comes primary. And as men and women who bear the image of God, our allegiance is completely set in Him. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. This is not our home. We are temporary bystanders, temporary people, temporary nomads going through this place. It belongs ultimately to God and God alone. But he places people in positions. And sometimes we ask ourselves, well, how in the world does that work? There's evil left and right. Listen, there was evil in the day of Jesus. I'm not going to say that these Romans were squeaky clean and they were doing everything by the book. I know they weren't. I'm not going to say today that there are Americans that are in positions of power that are squeaky clean and doing everything by the book. I know my own depravity. I know my own sinfulness. But our allegiance belongs to God. And then there's that ironic statement that Mark makes in his closing comment. The men who sought to unguard Jesus' authority in his word see it on display by the authority of his word. Listen, friends, I'm not saying here that you all need to participate in the things of our world. I'm not saying that you all need to become officials in town hall today. I'm not going to tell you all that you need to devote your lives to public service. I'm not going to tell you to devote yourself to something that is contrary to biblical teaching. And I'm not going to sit here and say that public service is contrary to biblical teaching. What I am going to say is this. Infiltrate your community and your world with the gospel. Infiltrate it. We've been placed here. This is not our home. This is not our kingdom, but we can infiltrate it with the kingdom. Don't shy away from the gift that you have in the gospel. Don't miss your opportunity to bring the gospel to dark places. 
Church, this isn't a theory. This is reality. We're in a dark place that needs the gospel. And I want our church to be known as the church that reaches into, into the community with the gospel. I want us to be the church full of volunteers in our community. I want us to be people who care about Hebron. Not because of the power of a position, but because of the opportunity of the position. And that opportunity is bringing the gospel. Rather than trying to reach the town by reaching into us, I want us to fulfill the Great Commission and go. Go and make disciples. Not come and make disciples. Go and make disciples. I want us to be a people who reach into that coffee shop across the street. I want us to be a people who go into the schools that are surrounding us. I want us to be a people into that town hall, into the Little League, into the soccer club, into the PTO. I want us to be in Hebron with the gospel. And I don't want to stop there. I want to go into Colchester and Marlborough and East Hampton and Andover and Lebanon and into all the other parts of Connecticut and New England and the world and I want to bring the gospel and I want to do it with you. Friends, we have to reach. We have to reach into, which means that we have to step out and we have to step in faith. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to be received, but we have to go. It's not an if or an and. It is a go. It's a command. Let me give you a great example. How many of you noticed over Easter that there were hundreds of egg hunts in our area? Hundreds. Did did anybody else notice that? Okay. Here's something I found really interesting. I mean, I, I must have seen five million ads. I'm being, I'm exaggerating, but I've seen a ton of ads about Easter egg hunts. This church, that church, that church, this parks and rec department, that parks and rec department, this town, this place, here, there, everywhere. There are Easter eggs everywhere. I, I don't even think we found them all. But you know what killed me? It wasn't the fact that there were 5 million Easter egg hunts. It was that everybody was trying to do the same thing with the same goal of getting lots and lots of results. I mean, there were literally five churches in our vicinity doing an Easter egg hunt on the same day. The same day. You know what was even worse than that? Our Parks and Rec Department put one on for free for all the kids in our town. Our parks or rec departments trying to do it. There are five churches in our area trying to do it. And none of them work together. There might have been kids that went to six Easter egg hunts in the same day. And they went home with bellies full of candy. They probably puked everywhere too. And deserved it. (laughs) But friends, here's my point. You know where we should have been? We should have been with Rec Park. That's where we should have been, because that's where the gospel is needed. There are people flooding to a community event 
who don't know Jesus, and we have the opportunity to just step out as volunteers and say, here we are. What do you need? You want somebody to pick up trash? You want somebody to fill eggs? You want somebody to do face painting? You want somebody to say hi? You want a photo booth? We don't have to recreate the wheel, friends. We should have been there. And I'm going to repent right now because of my lousy attitude. I was annoyed that I saw five million ads, but it didn't spark me to go to the place where people needed the gospel. I stayed comfortable. And I could have spent a couple hours doing something that would have reached somebody. A couple hours would have been worth it. We should be in things like the Town Center Project. We will be in the town-wide tag sale, June 1st, Saturday, 9 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Church of Hope is hosting the town-wide tag sale. We should be in the soccer club and in the little league teams, coaching kids, being there for families. We should be reaching into the PTO. We should be supporting teachers in our area and giving them the resources that their budgets aren't giving them. We should be going and proclaiming the gospel because if we don't, friends, here's the reality. We will cease to exist. Do you see how serious this is? We will cease to exist if we don't go. Next week is not the moment. The next season is not the moment. Now is the moment. Right now is the moment to respond and call after the gospel. And church, we've got work to do. But praise the Lord, there's tons of us. You might be thinking, well, there's maybe like 30, 40, maybe 50 of us. You go into any organization and tell them, I've got 50 volunteers that will help. You know what they're going to say? Great, bring them in. They won't turn you away. We've been given a light in the gospel. Now let's shine that light. Let's bring hope. Let's go into the dark places. Let's make a difference. Not by recreating the wheel, but going to the place where help is needed. We might not be able to do everything. We can't fulfill the entire calendar in Town Hall or the entire calendar for the PTO or the entire calendar for Ram Soccer Club or for Ram Softball or Baseball. But you know what we can do? We can start. We can put our our people and our energy and our message in one thing and we can get our wheels going. We can do that. We get to do that. The religious leaders were insecure and their pride led them to align themselves with the Herodians when they should have aligned themselves with God. And Jesus confronted their hypocrisy and he showed his authority. And we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We have the good news of the gospel. An incredible opportunity to reach around us with the gospel. And my one thing I want to leave you with today is this. 
this week, I want you to make a list of three, three people, three people that you can invite to church and you can bring the gospel to. I want you to make a commitment to pray for them this week. And I want you to start a conversation with them about Jesus. Because we get to do this, friends. We get to bring hope to dark places. And the good news is, we get to start now. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that in Jesus there is ultimate, absolute authority. God, nothing could stop your plan. No one could pull something over on you. And you have gone to those places that have been dark, and you've brought the light of the gospel. Now we pray, O oh Lord, that you would 